At this time, let's turn in our Bibles to Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And we'll be reading the entire chapter. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's Holy Word, beginning in verse 1. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him, Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, Comfort the faint-hearted. Uphold the weak. Be patient with all. See that no one renders evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good both for yourselves and for all. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. Test all things. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. We're relying upon God's help and blessing this morning. Let's turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 
as we focus our attention primarily upon verses 12 and 13 this morning. Verses 12 and 13. Here the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica says this, And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. Be at peace among yourselves. So he says, we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And then he adds this, be at peace among yourselves. What is a healthy church? That's a question I was asked when I came to candidate here about 11 or so years ago. Probably because in the Q&A session that we had downstairs, I had mentioned something about the goal of having a healthy church and promoting uh, health within the body of Christ. And somebody asked me a follow-up question, uh, perhaps one that I wasn't expecting. Uh, what is a healthy church? And I don't recall the answer that I gave, um, but this is a question we need to answer. And this morning, we're going to be thinking about what the Apostle Paul says to the Thessalonian believers as at least one way of answering this question. This is not a comprehensive sermon uh, where we're going to be going all throughout the Scriptures to find the, the comprehensive answer to the question of what is a healthy church, but rather we're going to focus concretely and specifically on this particular passage as it helps us to answer that question. You'll notice that in the verses that I just read, the emphasis is upon the brethren and how they view those who are in authority over them, those who labor among them and are over them in the Lord, those who admonish them, and it speaks of the way in which they're to regard them. These two verses tell us quite a bit about the leadership in a healthy church. In a healthy church, the leadership is laboring among the body of Christ. The leadership is recognized as being over the membership in terms of ecclesiastical authority in the Lord. The leadership holds members accountable, admonishing and formal and informal disciplinary and shepherding ministry, and so on and so forth. There's a lot to be seen in these verses about the leadership in a healthy church. And if you go on to verse 14, you can see that there's a direct exhortation to the brethren with respect to what they ought to be doing in a healthy church context. You can see that, and we'll be, Lord willing, considering this this evening, the manner in which the brethren, the membership of the church, is called to warn those who are unruly, to comfort the faint-hearted, to uphold the weak, to be patient with all, and so on and so forth. So there's much material here for us to consider. And of course, this past week for Mr. Hughes and myself was, was a hectic week. We had much going on. And uh, I was trying to think, what am I going to preach on? Um, and and to, be, to be frank, I really wasn't sure. Friday night, we were at an ordination installation service. 
and one of the ministers who presented a charge to the congregation spoke from this text. And I won't be reiterating what he said in that context, but the text just really stuck these verses in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And it just seemed like a natural subject for us to take up this Lord's Day, morning and evening. What is a healthy church? It's important for us to recognize that the church in Thessalonica was to a large extent a healthy church, uh, an exemplary church. You see in chapter 1 verse 7 that after the Word of God came to them and they received it in much affliction and with joy in the Holy Spirit, that they became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Macedonia is the church of the Philippians, and Achaia is the church of the Corinthians. So these are well-known churches in the first century, and the, the, the Word of God and its impact upon the Thessalonians informing this church became an example for these other first century apostolic Christian congregations. So they were an exemplary church. Chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, For this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the Word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the Word of men, but as it is in truth the Word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Then verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. And he goes on. So he's saying that the Gospel went from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so the Thessalonians became imitators of those faithful churches that had sent the apostles to preach to them. And then they became so exemplary as we heard in chapter 1 that they became an example so that the Gospel would spread further throughout the world. So this is a, a healthy congregation. They received the Word of the Gospel as not the Word of men, but as the Word of God, and it was effectively working in them. Chapter 3, verse 6. Paul had sent Timothy. And Timothy, we're told, came back with a report. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love, and that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. So here you can see Timothy, a godly pastor and evangelist at that time, comes to Paul and the apostles and brings a report that the church in Thessalonica uh, has faith and love. Uh, that as a response to the good news, they've become good news for the Apostle Paul. This report, this good news of their faith and of their love, uh, of their receiving what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. In other words, faith and love. This, this is the twofold response that we ought to have to the Scriptures. To the doctrines of Scripture, we're to believe. To the commands of Scripture, love fulfills the law. So, this is a healthy church. Uh, this is a, a church in which their Christian faith is working by love, and they have a, a great love even for all the saints, even for those throughout the world. They have a, a good remembrance of them. 
So it's a healthy church. Chapter 4, verse 9. This is confirmed as well. He says, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed, you do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. That's Philippi. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, so on and so forth. We'll look at some of these things. But notice, he's saying that they're so diligent to hear the preaching of the Word, to search the Scriptures as they have opportunity, that they're taught by God Himself to love one another. And so Paul says, I don't even need to say this. You could say, well, you know, he's just kind of being clever here. It's a way to disarm, you know. But no, he's actually saying that these verses consistently show that he's genuinely saying, he doesn't even think he needs to mention it. He's actually commending them that they are loving one another. But he says that you need to increase more and more. So you can have a person with a healthy body, Uh, generally speaking, but they need to get healthier. And that's the idea here for the body of Christ in Thessalonica. They're a healthy church, but there are ways for them to get even healthier to increase more and more. Chapter 5, verse 11, the verse that precedes our passage for this morning, says, Therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. So he says, essentially, Timothy's given me a report. You're doing this, but continue to do it. In other words, even increase in your ministry as members of the church, comforting and edifying one another, just as you're also presently doing. So they're a healthy church. They have room to get healthier, and they need to persevere in the things that have made them healthy in the first place. And fundamentally, when we think of the church we, we think of the leadership and the membership. Now, it's not as though the leaders are not members. We're not suggesting that. And it's not as though the members have no say on who becomes a leader. We have elections and, and members vote. Communicant members vote for their officers. So, understand there are nuances here, but this is a helpful distinction. Uh, leadership and membership, membership and leadership. This is a fundamental aspect to the doctrine of the church. In Hebrews chapter 6, the Apostle Paul, writing to the Hebrew Christians about the danger of their falling away from the fundamentals of the faith, he says this in verse 1, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection not laying again the foundation. Now, what's the foundation of just the basic doctrines that he would preach and teach to get churches established? Well, he says the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So here's the call of the Gospel. Repent and believe. Of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands. He goes on to say of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. So we can understand faith and repentance as fundamental to the apostolic message. We can understand the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, the doctrines of heaven and hell, if you will. We can understand that as fundamental. But notice, right smack dab there in the middle in verse 2, he includes this, 
of the doctrine of baptisms and the laying on of hands. Uh, in other words, the doctrine of membership, baptisms. You know, back then they had a lot more converts. They put it in the plural, I suppose. I don't know. But the doctrine of baptisms. So we're baptizing people into the body of Christ and they become members. Those who profess credibly are communicant members. Covenant children who are baptized upon the profession of their parents are baptized as baptized members in the church. Baptisms. And also of laying on of hands. The doctrine of ordination. The doctrine of church leadership. And so, these are biblical categories. Leadership and membership. And these are the categories that Paul addresses as he's seeking to help the Thessalonians to to grow more and more healthy in the life and ministry of their church. Uh, As I said, verses 12 and 13 speak of how they're to regard the leadership. Verse 14 and following, and also back in verse 11, urges the members to be actively engaged in these various activities to promote the health of the church. Well, let's consider healthy church leadership this morning. In a healthy church, the leadership will be first laboring strenuously. Laboring strenuously. Working hard. In a healthy church, the leadership, and we could say the eldership, we're thinking here of pastors and elders in the church serving on local consistories or sessions, laboring strenuously, working hard. Notice Paul identifies the leadership of the church as those who labor among you. That's the first thing that he says about them so that the Thessalonians would know who he's talking about. He introduces them as those who labor among you. Now, he wouldn't do that if the leadership in Thessalonica was not well known for their labor. Now, he goes on to say those who are over you in the Lord, but the first characteristic he identifies to set the tone is these are the ones who are laboring among you. 1 Timothy 3.1 tells us that those who desire the office of an overseer desire a good work. Leadership in the church is to be a strenuous, diligent labor. And those who rule well, and those who labor in the word and doctrine, 1 Timothy 5.17, are going to be known for their work. In fact, these are the people that we want to elect as officers, particularly as elders and as pastors, those who are laboring diligently already so that they can get to work in the business of building and and, uh, managing and ruling in the kingdom of God. Now, if you look at the Apostle Paul's example in chapter 2, verse 9, it really shows us what he's talking about here. He says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and toil, for laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, we preach to you the Gospel of God. So he's saying he set an example as, a, as an apostle, as a church leader. He's setting an example in planting this church and in overseeing its organization. He's saying that he labored, in fact, himself and Silvanus, probably Silas, and Timothy, 
He says they all labored and toiled night and day so as not to be a burden to them. Church leadership is not to be dead weight, but it's to be carrying the load. Jeremiah says in Lamentations that it's particularly a blessing for a young man to carry the yoke in his youth. And so here Timothy, even as a younger man, is serving in church leadership, bearing the yoke, laboring with Paul day and night, and they're laboring to preach the gospel. You see as well, chapter 4 and verse 11, we remarked earlier that Paul wants them to increase more and more, and he gives an area for improvement here. That you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. Now, that phrase, mind your own business, does not necessarily carry the same idea as what it means in our society. You know, mind your own business, something like that. That's not exactly what he's saying. What he's saying is you have a calling and a business and a job, and you need to be working diligently in that calling, uh, providing for yourself and for your family, working with your own hands as we commanded you, and, and setting a good example to those outside the church that Christians are not just a bunch of lazy, impractical people, but work hard. Have that spirit of excellence that Daniel had even in the courts of foreign kings. And he's urging this so that they may lack nothing. In other words, some of them maybe are not working and they're not laboring to provide for themselves. They've become dead weight. So all the more... If Paul's desiring the church to improve on this issue, all the more the leaders need to be setting the example. If the leaders are dead weight, how much more so the members? If the shepherds are lazy, how much more so are the sheep going to be lazy? So 2 Thessalonians 3 gets into this in greater detail. Those who were living in a disorderly and uh, uh, really lazy way, not earning their own bread. Uh, but, but you can see these kind of issues are going to get worse and worse if the elders themselves are not setting an example of diligent work in their vocation. And, and even for ministers, even for those who preach the gospel, who serve as teaching elders, uh, this is important. And uh, perhaps we have some in our congregation who are thinking, considering a possible internal call to the ministry. And... Uh, recognize that this is a labor this is a diligent work second corinthians twelve fifteen, the apostle paul says this and i will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls though the more abundantly i love you the less i am loved so he's saying in a situation where he's not being loved and respected in the way he's speaking of in, in our sermon text uh he still is working hard. He's spending. He's being spent. He's giving it all. He's, as he says elsewhere, pouring out himself like a drink offering on the sacrifice uh, of their faith. You could go all throughout the, the pastoral epistles and see this theme again and again, how Paul is fighting the good fight. In other words, agonizing the good agony. It's strenuous labor. He compares pastors to hard-working farmers, uh, to soldiers in an army who don't get distracted by civilian affairs. 
uh, he, he uses many of these illustrations. Uh, Psalm 126, verse 6, those who sow in tears, laboring strenuously. The elders of the church ought never to be like the nobles of Tekoa. Perhaps you've been reading through the Scriptures and you ran across this very interesting verse in Nehemiah 3, verse 5. As Nehemiah is setting a a wonderfully diligent example for the people of God, as something of a nobleman himself, as governor, uh, and yet he leads the people by example with diligence in rallying them together and laboring with them to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. But we're told, Nehemiah 3 verse 5, next to them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not put their shoulders to the work of their Lord. Now, I realize in some sense, we're in southeast Michigan, this is something of a a blue-collar area, and I think we have a blue-collar mindset, and I think that's a good thing. I think there's a a work ethic and a certain value system that we have in, in this part of the country, in this part of the state, that might be more difficult for people from other areas and other parts of the country. So this is, this is something I think even uh, just in that basic level resonates with us. We want elders, pastors, leaders in the church, perhaps even thinking deacons. We want people who will labor strenuously. They're not in it for themselves. They're not you know, sitting on a throne while everybody else is laboring and, and these nobles won't put their hands to the work. Um, in fact, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Look at David when he's not out with the troops, out with Uriah the Hittite, laboring self-sacrificially with God's people in fighting the battles of the Lord. He's sitting, resting, lounging on his rooftop, and so begins his great scandalous fall. So, in a healthy church, the leadership will be laboring strenuously. Secondly, in a healthy church, the leadership will be exercising authority. In a healthy church, the leadership will be exercising authority. Those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, this phrase, over you, we can connect with one of the common terms that's used for pastors and elders in the church. For those who govern the church, overseers, bishops, those who oversee, those who superintend, those who are in some sense, although we take this the wrong way sometimes, uh, looking over our shoulder, but, but the elders of the church are overseers. They're over us in the Lord by way of authority. And in our society, in our culture, that's something that may not resonate well with us and perhaps even in southeast Michigan, that may not resonate well with us. And yet, that's the biblical pattern. In the family, we have fathers and mothers, and we're to honor them and respect them and to be obedient to them in the Lord. And in the state, we have servants of God for our good, that insofar as they're doing what God's called them to do in that specific sphere of civil authority, we're to honor them and obey them and respect them. Even so, in the church, God has set overseers, elders, under-shepherds, under Christ, but by way of church authority over the membership of the church. 
and we live in, in an egalitarian society. I'm just waiting for, you know, at some point, some governor of Michigan to rename uh, Lake Superior as Lake Equality. We don't tend to like uh, this idea of authority, but it is God-ordained and it is necessary. And it reflects the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see in Thessalonica, one of the reasons that they had such a healthy church to begin with is that when the apostles went there, they spoke with authority. Not their own authority as of men, but with God's authority, the authority of the message God had given them through His Word. The authority of the Gospel. The authority of Scripture. Chapter 1, verse 5, For our our Gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Spirit. So notice the way in which the apostles and Timothy exercised this authority was not in such a way as to lord it over the flock. Notice they made it clear that we're doing what we're doing for your sake. We're servants of Christ for your good. We're bringing you our gospel, but really it's God's gospel. It's the Holy Spirit's gospel. And we want you to follow us and be imitators of us and imitators of these other faithful churches as we saw in chapter 2. Yes, follow, imitate us and the Lord. In other words, follow us as we follow Christ. Christ has ordained that one of the ways in which we follow Him is by being discipled and trained and taught and instructed and disciplined and led and shepherded by leadership in the church. So yes, followers of us and of the Lord. So these are men who exercise authority under the authority of of Christ, and of the Word of God. Uh, We'll see that in just a moment. But they're exercising authority. Look at chapter 2, verse 7. Notice the way in which they exercise authority, taking their cue from the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment in particular, where we have a commandment that encapsulates the principle of human authority and the way in which God does that is by illustrating it with the respect we have for our father and our mother. We know that includes all the different instances of God-ordained authority, but the Lord explains that to us as it were in the Ten Commandments in such a way as to show us parenting as a model for other forms of authority. And so you notice that when the the church leaders in Thessalonica exercise authority, they do it in a parental kind of way. He says, but we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So affectionately longing for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us. So there's authority, but it's a parental type of authority. They're rejoicing that their children, as it were, are walking in the truth. And they're loving them as a mother loves her children. As a father is gracious and compassionate to his children, they view these members of the church as their their dear ones and their beloved ones. And he goes on as well 
in verse 11, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged, so there's authority, every one of you as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. And he goes on to say that when they proclaimed the Word, the Thessalonians understood that it was not the words of men, but the Word of God. Why? Because they were not ashamed. They were not fearful. They were not timid to proclaim God's message as God's message. We know Jesus was well known in His ministry as one who spoke with authority. And perhaps there's something, certainly there's something unique there. He could say, thus says the Lord, in the sense of He is the Lord. Verily, verily, I say unto you, But there's also something that we can imitate here that He spoke from the Scriptures with authority. It is written. Have you not read? He was not ashamed to proclaim God's message to God's people or really to anyone with God's authority. And He gave the keys of the kingdom of heaven to the elders of the church. You can read about that in Matthew 16 and then again in Matthew chapter 18. The leadership of the church has keys. In the family, there's the rod. In the state, there's the sword. In the church, we have keys. Opening up privileges and shutting out privileges based upon someone's credible profession of faith and commitment to Christ in terms of the fruit or lack thereof. The church has authority. It has authority to preach and proclaim. It has authority over the sacraments. The leadership of the church has keys of authority over ordination of elders and deacons and at a broader level, authority to ordain ministers of the Gospel. The church has keys with respect to the the discipline of the church and so on and so forth. These keys of the household managers and stewards of God are authoritative keys. And they are to be used in a manner that is consistent with God's heavenly authority. That's why in uh, Matthew 16, 18, and 19, Jesus says, what you bind on earth shall have been. That's the the tense of the verb. It really should be translated that way. What you bind on earth with these keys shall have been bound in heaven. And so we ought only to use these keys when it comports and is consistent with what God has declared from heaven in His Word. And once we use the keys in that manner, it has heaven's stamp of approval. Paul had to frequently urge his younger associates to speak from Scripture with authority. Uh, We know Timothy was perhaps tempted toward timidity, but Titus 2.15 after describing all these practical exhortations for the people of God, he says, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. So in a healthy church, the elders are not apologizing for their authority. They're not abusing it. Okay? But they're discerning the Scriptures. They're applying them. They're declaring them. And they're exercising that authority. If you're going to war, you don't want a general You don't want leadership in the military. You don't want a commander-in-chief that shies away from using the authority that he's been given for the good of that campaign. You need elders that are not afraid to exercise authority. Not quick to the trigger, but um, 
but they know where it is. They, they know anyway, you get the point. They, they'll pull the trigger if they need to pull the trigger at the proper time. You're looking for elders like that. And, uh, and he's saying they have elders like that, but that's one of the reasons they're healthy. Thirdly, in a healthy church, the leadership will be maintaining proper accountability. I won't say too much on this because um, I've already spoken to it to some extent. Notice that these are the ones who are over you in the Lord. In the Lord. In the Lord Jesus Christ. It is Jesus who rules over His church. And we frequently use this formula when we constitute or adjourn session meetings, or presbytery meetings, or synod meetings that were constituting or adjourning the meeting in the name and by the authority of Zion's only head and king, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our larger catechism tells us that Christ executes the office of a king by calling out of the world a people to Himself and by ruling over them. By ruling over them through officers, laws, and censures by which He visibly governs them. Notice, it is the officers, laws, and censures of the church in accord with Scripture by which Jesus Himself uh, governs His church. But when the elders stray from the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, from the agenda of the Lord Jesus Christ, when they're not accountable to Christ and His Word, when they're not accountable, for instance, to Presbyterian church oversight with respect to higher courts of the church, the broader assembly of elders at the regional presbytery level, at the national synodical or general assembly uh, where there's accountability, when they don't submit to that, they've gone off the rails. So Paul's saying, yes, you're over the members, but it's in the Lord, subject to Christ, His Word, and the broader accountability of the church courts. Follow me, says Paul, as I follow Christ. Submit to my authority insofar as I submit to Christ, and I'm going to set an example by submitting to the brethren, to these various uh, additional spheres of accountability. When the elders of the church are either ministering in an independent context where they have no accountability, or they're in a Presbyterian context, but they're not respecting and submitting to that accountability, we have big problems, and it's not a healthy church situation. And I would urge you to to think about, if you're not a member here, uh, is it wise to be a member of a church where there's not proper accountability for your elders? If they make a mistake and there's no other place for you to go, is that wise? I realize that even in a Presbyterian church, it's possible that you can go the whole way up the chain and the synod can make a bad decision. And at that point, you just file your complaint with the head of the church and wait till judgment day. But the point is, um, it, it doesn't always work out perfectly, but you have a system in place that's designed to work and provide that oversight and that review process. Uh, I don't believe it's safe ordinarily to be in a church environment where you don't have that. There are a lot of very solid, independent, Reformed Baptist churches and so on and so forth, and I don't want to speak ill of them, but uh, as for me and my house, We don't feel safe unless there's broader accountability for our leaders. Fourthly, 
In a healthy church, the leadership will be providing spiritual oversight. Those who admonish you, and notice the the word you here, uh, if you're familiar with this, or perhaps you're using the King James, which sometimes highlights this, it's you plural. It's you plural. So this could involve admonition or correction from the pulpit publicly to the people of God in a collective way. The, the, the Scriptures are profitable for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness that the man of God, the, the, the prophetic preacher of God's Word from the pulpit especially, is equipped for every good work. So collectively, we need to be sensitive that you know, is the preaching of the Word directing applications and exhortations to us? Are we being admonished? Are we being corrected? Are we being challenged from the pulpit in a healthy church? That's happening in a fatherly, loving way, but it's happening. Also, you plural could simply mean a collection of individuals where the elders of the church are coming alongside and there may be private admonition, private counseling that takes place where God's people are urged to to steer in a certain direction. They're warned of various errors and, and uh, sins that they might not continue in them or fall into them. So, so there's so much in terms of the ministry of the eldership in preaching and privately and sometimes, if necessary, uh, publicly bringing a word of admonition or of rebuke where that is necessary. Now, true Christians, when they see a session of elders laboring strenuously, exercising authority under King Jesus with accountability and wisdom, okay, true Christians will welcome admonition and correction from their elders. They will welcome that. Uh, we see that throughout the Proverbs that a wise man's going to heed correction. Even the psalmist says it's as oil on my head, it's a blessing. False converts and backsliding Christians will not, will not appreciate being corrected and rebuked. Now, true Christians won't appreciate being admonished if they think they're innocent. So let's just leave that as well, right? There's a place for challenging the elders in these cases and we don't want to say, well, somebody doesn't like the discipline against them, therefore they're, you know, they're backsliding or they're unconverted. But the point is as a general rule and in instances where it's just crystal clear and plain the offenses and the biblical principles that are laid out and so on and so forth, a true Christian will be eager to be corrected as opposed to the alternative of continuing on in a self-destructive lifestyle. True Christians want this from the pulpit and they want this from their elders again in private. They don't want the elders just you know, saying a bunch of things in public and grandstanding. They want it in private. And if necessary, if all else fails... I think as Christians, we want, if necessary, to reclaim us. We we want that public statement if it would be used by God to keep us from greater sin. Uh, In addition, we're wrapping up here. uh, In a healthy church, the leadership will be greatly honored and valued. The Apostle is clear that in a healthy church, like in Thessalonica, that the membership will and ought to esteem the leadership very highly in love for their work's sake. He says that they ought to recognize those who are laboring among them. 
And this could initially, at a basic level, mean to know them, to be, to be taking note. Who are the elders of the church? How can I pray for them, keeping an eye on them? And how can we minister them and encourage them in their work? Uh, how can we live our Christian lives in such a way as to make their job easier so that they, on Judgment Day, as Hebrews 13 says, they're not uh, you know, giving a, a report of grief before the throne of judgment, but rather one of joy. Paul says that the Thessalonians are his joy and his crown. He's looking forward to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because these people recognized Him. They esteemed Him highly. They encouraged Him. They took note of Him and appreciated the diligent work that He did. That's how we ought to treat our elders. We ought to look for that. We ought to encourage that. Uh, The word very highly, literally, in the Greek, at least from my vantage point, seems to be the word above and beyond. These are the words that are used here for very highly. Above and beyond. Uh, We're to show double honor, which if we had time, I'd try to make the case. I don't think it's specifically speaking of salary here. Um, What sense does it make to double somebody's salary? But anyway, double honor, 1 Timothy 5.17. Double honor to the elders who rule well, especially to those who labor in the Word and doctrine. The true Christian naturally or supernaturally, instinctively, will hold those faithful elders who are working hard in high regard. It's instinctive. Paul's not asking us to do something unnatural as Christians. It's instinctive for us to to hold faithful, hardworking elders with a, a sense of double honor, double respect. And especially the person who's preaching to us, there's just something there that instinctively, there's, there's a degree of honor and appreciation for the Word being preached week by week. Uh, of course, that has implications for supporting the ministry, and, and Paul gets into that. But the focus is on honor, value, recognizing, esteeming them. Not out of flattery, not in fear, not fawning over them and worshiping them, but in love. Simply loving what Christ is doing in and through the elders of the church in love. Is there reverence? Is there respect? Yes, but not fear, not dread, love. Esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. And and lastly, in a healthy church, the leadership will be unhindered by divisions. Unhindered by divisions. Notice, even before Paul gets to verse 14, where he exhorts the brethren to directly engage in these forms of ministry to the saints, he includes an exhortation at the very end of verse 13. Be at peace among yourselves. And I don't think it's difficult to see the connection there, is it? That if we're seeking to encourage our elders, to esteem them highly in love for their hard work, then one of the best ways to do that is to labor to promote peace in the body of Christ. Right? Because if the church is filled with dissension in the ranks, that's going to sidetrack the elders from all the wonderful things that they're wanting to do proactively in advancing the kingdom and ministering to the saints and uh, training up scribes for the kingdom of heaven and all of these things. Dissension in the ranks is going to sidetrack uh, the general of the army and the, the, the leadership, the cabinet. 
And so we need to recognize as members, we should be at peace among ourselves. Uh, Disunity wastes valuable time. Now, sin wastes valuable time as well. And there are times when disunity is necessary to separate from sinful things that are happening. And there are necessary conflicts. Jesus came at times to bring not peace but a sword. So, but we need discernment. We don't want divisions that are unnecessary. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. I am of Christ. Do you realize even that type of thing, it's calculated to create a stumbling block. Now Paul and Apollos maybe are struggling to have unity and to see eye to eye. Or they're tempted in that direction because of people that are rising up in a sectarian manner. So the members of the church, in order to promote the unity and the well-being of the leadership, should strive insofar as it depends on them, insofar as it is flowing forth from true biblical purity, insofar as it's the peaceable fruit of righteousness, need to be promoting peace and trying to get along as much as possible as brothers and sisters in the body. Uh, and so, you know, there, there are conflicts. Our session's happy to meet with people that have conflicts. But if you can work those things out personally through Matthew 18, various other biblical principles, what, what a blessing, what a gift for your elders so that we can be about uh, the greater matters of the kingdom. Uh, my friends, pray for us. Paul says it to the Thessalonians, brethren, pray for us. Pray for the elders of this church. Pray for the ministry of the Word and sacraments and discipline. Pray for the discipleship ministry of this church. And look for ways to take personal responsibility to lighten that load. It may be by serving as a deacon. It may be someday by some of you serving as elders in the church. It may be simply by being faithful in your families to deal with things, faithful among your friends, to deal with things on the front end so that we can lighten the burden and load upon the elders that the Lord has given us. And in so doing, we will be promoting the health of this church. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the health and prosperity that our congregation has enjoyed We pray that we would increase and abound more and more. That we would be looking for ways to assist and strengthen the hands of our elders as Aaron and her strengthened the hands of Moses. We ask that Your Holy Spirit would be uniting us with the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That we would be joined together in the bonds of faith and hope and love that we would speak the same thing, even the truth in love, and that we would see this body abounding more and more in the health and vigor that is needed for us as we engage in the spiritual warfare set before us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.